Welcome to a pivotal moment in tennis history, a moment we are living and witnessing right now. Today, we stand on the brink of a revolution, not just in how the game is played, but how it's understood. Five years ago, when we embarked on this project, we anticipated changes, but what's unfolding is far more dramatic and more powerful than we ever imagined. Gone are the days of solely relying on impressionistic methods and the opinions of tennis gurus. We are now in an era where every shot, every point, and every strategic decision is transformed by the unyielding power of data analytics. This isn't just a change, it's a seismic shift that is redefining the very essence of tennis as we know it. As we experience these monumental changes firsthand, we invite you to join us on this groundbreaking journey. Together, let's discover how data analytics is not just influencing, but revolutionizing the world of tennis. So the Arts of Winning is brought to you by Sterling Strother and Dan Travis. This podcast is dedicated to shedding light on the new era of tennis. It looks at the completely new areas and realms of possibility that this era presents us with. Primarily, we examine the battles that will be fought as the player develops competitive intelligence. We ask you to subscribe to the podcast, both on the channels, Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, and subscribe directly to us by visiting www.artofwinningtennis.com. We can help you negotiate your way around this tremendously exciting new era in tennis. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this is podcast number 11. Can you believe it? So we are today we're going to be go, delving straight into some data analytics, but some not exactly real-time data analytics because we're not sitting by, by the match. But Sterling um, has been working with, uh, with Pierce, his son, and you've recently, Sterling, am I right, it's the university, it was the um, Alabama Southern State. It was the Southern, transition. it was held in Alabama, and it was the Southern, Southern Winter. Tournament. It was an L three. It's it, the tournament's made up of nine states in the southern mm-hmm. part of the U- United States, not including Florida. Florida has their own division, but all the other states—North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, um, Louisiana, Mississippi—lot quite a lot of good players in the southern region of the United mm-hmm. States. So it's a really, really competitive tournament. Okay, it's a really competitive tournament, and it was. Am I right? It's the under eighteens. <clears throat> It was 16s, 16s. Boys, boys 16s, yep. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, look at how we approach this specific match or one specific match at that tournament. Which, sorry, which round was it, Sterling? Uh, this, was, this was actually the last round that he played, and he played a, quite a good player. Uh, I believe he was a 10 UTR. And uh, Pierce was right there with him. And as you'll, as we'll talk about this today, it, you're, we're going to reveal the closeness of the match. Yeah. Um, and how things could have swung one way or the other, depending on how certain points were treated. 
and how they were played out. So I'm going to go through sort of some specifics today about what I noticed when I look back at the data and then how we took this data and applied it to the practice court and arranged the practice court this past week, especially last couple of weeks, and went through some rehearsal and addressed some of the issues that we saw in the data to help peers get a clear understanding of what actually happened. So as we go through this, you'll, you'll understand a little bit more. I'll try to not get too far into the weeds um, as this is a podcast and not necessarily a visual present presentation, but I am going to throw out some, some, some numbers and some, some data here. And hopefully yes. the listener will be able to follow you, you. All of you listening will be able to follow along. Yeah, because we are going to be doing in, 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 the, in the forthcoming course uh, a yeah. detailed explanation. So that will have that will have have diagrams, but yes, this is right. this is the podcast. And Sterling, before we we dive in and to this first section, what you're doing today, what you're describing today, is a process that you do right with Pierce and with other players. Yes, and really, what we're trying to do through, with, with the art of winning is we're trying to get get you, the listener, to do the same thing. Correct. That's just, the yes. idea here. So we're right. giving it a working example so that you can become familiar with the way we talk about it, okay? Because it is it, it is new. Yes. And we want you to be able to start ad- adapting your own, your, 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 your way of doing this. But I think this is why it's so exciting today is, is that we've got this live example. So before we then we look at look at the the details of the match charting and so on, which I assume we're going to do. I want to ask you, how did you organize your players' practice sessions prior to using the match data analytics? Well, I, I did what most coaches around the world do. I mean, we if you're able to attend the match, I would take notes on errors and winners whether it was forehands, backhands, whether they were in the net, maybe it was a net error, serves, double faults, um, first serve percentage, or whether they played the point with a first serve or second serve. Service breaks, did they? how many times did they break serve? How many times did they hold serve? I also looked at, I sort of noticed like the mental, emotional state of my players. They play, were they getting frustrated too much? Um, yeah. Were they using a lot of energy kind of unnecessarily? How were their routines? Were they rushing between point to point? You know, how did they do on the big points? Were they when they were up 40, 30, when they were down 30, 40, add in, add out? Yeah. Did their did their technique hold up like on under the big point, maybe the pressure point, or were they aggressive? Were they defend defensive? The the basic things. I mean, if, if you're any any tennis coach or tennis parent that's been to a lot of tournaments and watched the players. You'd look for these same things, which are, which are, you know, they're fine things to look for. The only problem is I found that there wasn't a lot of continuity between these different things I was looking for. Like there wasn't anything that was bridging or webbing them together in relationship. And so when I went to the practice court, it was kind of the same thing. I would look at work on forehands and then we work on our backhand. You know, we typically could work on what the player felt like they needed to improve on because, after all, it is their game. And as coaches, we want to try to help our player improve in areas they feel like they're breaking down in. But at the same time, as an observer, 
you know, you're as a coach, you're trying to do the best you can to help them in the, this practice court environment. And I call it a, tra- we call it a traditional practice court environment because that's traditionally what occurs. And so if I wasn't able to go to the player's match, maybe I would ask the player when they would come back and get their feedback. And a lot of that feedback is very, it's generalization, right? It's, it's not very specific. They were like, either they were frustrated or they were happy. They would say, oh, well, my forehand was good in this match or it broke down in the next match. Or, my back end just didn't feel comfortable. I wasn't serving well, or I was serving well. So, you know, as you can see, the answers really provided very little insight into like when errors actually occurred within a point and why was there other reasons other than a technical flaw, right? Was that was there a decision making error? So these specifics are not really there when you when there's not match data. And the kind of data that we're doing here at Art of Winning helps sort of um, round up that type of information and put it in sort of a <clears throat> start off with a, your initial you know, chart and then break it out. And today I'm going to talk about how kind of I, I take that initial chart. Yes. We share this in the book. We share the chart in the book and the app is going to do this kind of for you. It's going to create different charts similar to the charts I'm going to share today in the podcast. And so that's kind of the way I did it. And like I said, it's, I mean, that's how you learn to watch matches basically uh, without specifics as we're going to share today. Sterling, after you've mapped the data from the recent match, what's the first step you take towards analyzing the data? Well, I think the most natural thing for me to sort of observe is Obviously, we want our player to be a better player. That's to perform better each match. So we're, we kind of show our attention to the, where the errors are occurring, right? So yes. I look at, uh, well, first of all, I compile, I see the numbers and I see the rally link and I kind of break that up into serve rally link and return rally link. And then I kind of highlight, you know, the first point of every game, whether they won or lost it. I notice what the momentum score is and the game score is for that first point. Then if he loses the second point, I see what the rally length was there. And then um, if I have video footage, obviously, of his match, I didn't of this one, but I can go back and, and see some things a little bit clearer as far as like forehands, backhands and things like that. So that's what I'm really looking for is like, where are the errors? Are they forehand, backhand? If I, if I map that particular uh, data point, and then, you know, just kind of lay that out. Like, where are the error locations? Were they the, in the first strike phase? Were they in the patterns of play phase, five to eight shots? And were they in extended rally? So how do you prioritize the match data for your player? What are you initially looking for to decide which direction to go in the, the, the next practice session with your player? Okay, so what I did here for Pierce is I knew we were going to have some time between the next tournament. So I wanted to prioritize, well, I do this for every match, but I prioritize the the first strike errors first, and then the patterns of play errors, and then the extended rally. So I do it in that order. So I know which, which direction to begin, where I need to begin in the practice court. So I'm looking at the shot selection on the S and S1 
and R and R1 sequences. Those are first strike patterns. So for example, let me just, I'm going to go through some of the data real quick. When I broke down the rally link and I separated it, serve rally, when every time Pierce served or every time Pierce returned, what was the rally length? Okay. Of the whole match. It was two sets. And so the serve rally length for first strike was, well, there were 52 points played total when he was serving. 33 of those 52 ended zero to four. 12 ended five to eight and seven were extended rallies. Okay. So we see the percentages being 63% first strike, 23% patterns of play and 14% extended rally. That was when he was serving. When he was returning, it was pretty similar. It was 57 points total instead of 52. Uh, Zero to four was 34 points, then 16 points patterns of play, and then seven, exactly the same number of extended rallies when he's returning. So those percentages were 60%, 28%, and 12%. So you can see when you break it down, it's very similar as far as the, the where the majority of the points ended were first strike and then patterns of play, and then extended rally. Now, you know, he played this particular match. This, this, um, the kid he played was 300 in the nation in 16s. Pretty good. And uh, it was, like I said, it was a very competitive match. Um, um, most of the points went to 30 all or that, when they played. So that's, I look at that first, and I go, okay. So now I know I'm looking in the right place as far as um, I'm starting with first strike. So the next thing I do is I actually go through and I identify on the deuce court first. I start with, I can start with serving and I go, okay, how many points when he served on deuce court did he double fault on? Did he miss the S1? Did he miss the S2? Did he miss the S3? And were the, and then how many points from the deuce court when he was serving went to extended rally? So in that case, we had, Two double faults, two errors on S1, one error on S2, two errors on S3, and three extended rallies. So we had, um, that was when he served on the deuce court. Now, that is both sets together. Okay. That's not just one set, that's both sets. When he served on the ad court, uh, it was one double fault, six errors on the S1 versus two errors on the S1 when he played the point from deuce, and then zero errors on S2, three errors on S3, and then five errors on extended rally. So right away, I immediately zoomed in on, wait a minute, he's making uh, twice as many errors on the S1 when he starts or plays the point from ad court than he does deuce. So that tweaked my curiosity. So that was not even obviously. So when when I add up those numbers, Okay. What I find is he made 11 errors on the serve and S1 total in the match. He made six errors on in patterns of play. So that's a, a total of um, 17 errors. Okay. So that's interesting because if you think about it, he served, you know, I think he served f- four times in the first set and five times in the second set. So out of nine service games, he was making 17 errors on his first two shots. And so that just tweaks my interest. Now, when I went to the return side, when he was returning from deuce court, 
He made eight return errors. He made three errors on the first shot after the return, the R1. So that's 11 errors right there from Deuce Court. And then um, six errors in patterns of play, the next two shots on Deuce. Now on Ad Court, he made five return errors and four errors on the R1. Now, what struck me here is he made more return errors on Deuce Court than he did on Ad. It was eight to five. But he made 20 errors total on the first two shots of the point when he was returning. Now he's playing against a a good player. It's a great serve. He didn't make a lot of great returns, but obviously he's making return errors and R1 errors. So I just wanted to make sure that I was looking at this with the data and not just my memory, because when I remember back at the match, just remembering about it, I don't remember 13 return errors, you know, and I don't remember six S1 errors from the ad court, right? I maybe remember a few that were maybe at key moments in the match. So that's kind of how I break down the data initially and start to prioritize it. Why does match data provide a better way to organize your future practice sessions? Well, when I use the when we use match data, we're able to clearly lay out and strong frame the problem. Okay. So if there were there were errors made in the match, the player, our player lost the, the match. We're looking the, for the reasons why they may have lost the match and what sections of the point were most of the or errors starting to build up in. And so Pierce lost this match that I'm talking about today. It's a very close match, and, and, and you can look at the set score and interpret it however you want to. But the problem is you're kind of guessing there. Because as yes. we talked about, the set score doesn't really give us any specifics about how each game was played. So that's why data is so important to look at and sort of mine through and pick out the areas that sort of highlight or bring, they kind of tweak your, your curiosity. And this match, when I looked at the data, my curiosity was, was tweaked because I was looking at, he was making more S1 errors when he played the point from add versus deuce. And he was making more return errors on Deuce than he was making from Ad. Now, the R1 errors on, on Deuce and Ad were about the same. Okay. But I did notice that he was, you know, 20 plus 11 is 31 errors. 31 errors w- happened in first strike with Pierce. And if we look at patterns of play, you know, that's uh, 12 and 6. That's 18. So almost twice as many errors are occurring on the first two shots versus the next two shots after the serve and S1, R and R1. So to bring my our focus into first strike, okay, where are the where are some of the things we need to work on as far as like um, once he serves on ad court, is he really popping off his serve? Is he looking at the return player play his shot? Is he staring at his serve or judging his serve a little bit too long once he looks up? We talk about this in the book, how you want to look up towards your opponent to notice how they're sending the ball back instead of just looking at your shot and judging your shot. And it's very easy, especially for young players, to hit a serve, look up, and they sort of notice where their serve is bouncing in the box. If they're actually seeing their ball bounce in the service box, they're losing response time because they're not picking up the ball coming out of their opponent's racket quick enough. By the time the opponent hits the board, by the time they look up to their opponent, the ball is already almost halfway back to them, and now they're responding to it. And so these little things were noticed. 
well, without the data, we can't really narrow in to these specific areas where we can sort of design the practice court more intentionally. And so that's what I'm going to go into next. So if we've looked at the um, the actual how you prioritize and what you're looking at initially in the data. So can you tell us then about the about the practice court and, and how you move from that data analytics from the match into the practice court? So I know, as you said, you and Pierce, you've just returned from the Southern USDA tournament in Mobile, Alabama. Can you take us through the specific areas of Pierce's practice in this past week? Sure. So uh, we have a lot of time together. And so I can spend time dividing this up and being a little bit more deliberate with him. So I decided on the first day that we would focus on first strike patterns on his serve and S1, and we'd focus on the S1 forehand. Okay. Yes. We'd leave, we would not do a backhand. We would not do backhand rehearsal on the first day, just serve and then play forehands. And so <clears throat> what I did was I basically chose some patterns that I felt like that he could go through and we would score them. So for example, on the deuce court, I decided that he would serve the first pattern. He would serve position one, which is out wide. And then I would feed a ball up through the middle and he would run around and hit a forehand into C. And I actually mapped the court out. I had boundaries and he had to make the serve into that section and then make his forehand into C. And we did that 10 times. And his score was he made nine and he missed one. And that's that's just not missing one shot. That's like, well, it's missing one shot. But if he if he doesn't make both shots, that's a missed pattern. So he made nine and missed one. So I thought that was pretty good. So we went to P4. That's not a problem. (laughs) Well, you got to understand now I'm feeding a ball that's sort of a medium fed ball back through the middle, like, like inside of C, right? I'm not running him wide. Okay. I'm feeding it, you know, down the middle of the court. He's running around his backhand, hitting forehand to C. So I can vary the ball. I can hit it a little higher and deeper, or I can hit it shorter. Right. And we'll go through, we've gone through that rehearsal as well. So there's, there's different ways that you can, as a coach, feed the ball back. But the idea here is to feed a ball where the player, it's realistic that the player will run around their backhand and hit the forehand to see. And that's the objective, is to build this automation, this encoded specificity of how a player is seeing a ball coming back to them and how they're going to respond. So that there's no guessing when they see the ball coming back. They know what they yeah. want to do. They want to get around the backhand, hit the forehand to see. And so the other pattern was uh, P4C. So he served down the T. And um, on deuce, and then he, I, I kind of returned it through the middle, and he got around it, hit the forehand to see again, and that was eight two. So he missed one more than that. The other one was P one outside, and then he had it forehand to A. So this time I fed it cross, more cross court on the yes. return. I fed it wide. I fed it cross court. He had to kind of move out and yeah, bring it okay. back to A. And so that was nine successful patterns versus one unsuccessful pattern. And so the reason why we're recording this data is to figure out, okay, which one of these patterns he initially is, is sort of struggling with, right? 
So what's interesting is we went to the ad court. So he did pretty good. We had four patterns. There were two more uh, on Deuce. So we had four patterns on Deuce. So we went to do the patterns on ad. Well, the first pattern was he went P5, which is T serve on the ad. And then he had to run around his back end and hit the forehand to C, kind of like what he did on the, on the, on the Deuce court. Well, he was five successful and five errors, five missed patterns. And ev- except for he made, um, all those five errors was on his S1. So when I did that pattern, it almost confirmed what I saw in the data in his match, that he struggled with his S1 when he started the point from ad court. And so oh. that was very interesting oh. that when he served down the T and then he yeah. had to hit a forehand, he, he was like 50% accurate completing both shots. But what's interesting is, is when I, he served down the T P5, and he had to hit the forehand to A because I fed it kind of into B and he had to play like a forehand cross court. He was nine successful in one error. So he wasn't having a problem getting the forehand when he moved off to the right. But when he had to move back and around after he's in C serving on that court, that was a bit problematic for him. So we made it a note of that. Now, when he went, when he went to P7, which is uh, sort of out wide kind of body out wide on the ad court and he had to hit a forehand, whether he went to C or A, he did phenomenal. He was nine, one, nine, nine successful, one error. And then even he was perfect when he went that forehand to A kind of inside in forehand. He's really good at that, but, but that was interesting. So when I developed, when I chose the pattern, I wasn't, I didn't know that that T serve and then hitting, running around his back and hitting a forehand to C was going to be problematic, but it, it was the other day. So we did the same similar thing on the return side. I just define, okay, you've got to hit your return to B and then you got to hit your next forehand to D or you've got to hit your forehand to A and then you got to hit another forehand to C. And so we did it through the return side as well. And actually he scored fairly well. He was. You know, he had some issues on the return. He was, you know, out of the 10 patterns for each one, he would maybe make six and miss four, right? Okay. So it was like 60% and somebody was 70%. This just gives me a gauge as a coach where the player is. And yes. then we can start to talk about maybe the technical issues he's having or maybe the footwork issues. Maybe I noticed that when he was going around his backhand, after he served to add and he was going around his backhand as he was doing these patterns, I did notice that he just wasn't moving around the ball in a very productive way, sort of moving sideways instead of looping back around. And then some, he just cooked too much, you know, he hit too hard. You know, he didn't have enough spin on the ball. So the technical adjustments are found in the context of rehearsing patterns. And I think that's a very important point to put forth here today is before I had data and I wasn't using data, we would just rehearse the forehand, you know, inside out forehand. And maybe it was in the context of maybe me just feeding the ball, but it wasn't necessarily after he hit a serve and then had to move, right? The serve didn't exist in that sequence on the traditional tennis court. So I think that that is very important because when you practice, you know, like Frank Giampaolo always said this, he said, practice in the manner in which you expect to perform. He's exactly right. Practice in a manner in which you're expected to do that in a match. So when you're practicing, 
your inside out forehand or your inside in forehand or your back in cross court. Do it after a serve, right? You don't have to hit the serve big. You don't have to wear your shoulder out and hit all first serves 110 miles an hour. But you need to at least have that motion of serving and then resetting and then getting into the backhand or the forehand and hitting it to a specific target. And you'll find out really quickly whether your player is actually proficient and they're accurate in hitting their target on the serve and the S1, as well as consistency. How consistent are they? So when I did the scoring here, I was measuring not only consistency, but I was measuring accuracy as well because I had specific zones I wanted him to hit to. Now, some may say, well, Sterling, you know, you don't really know exactly what ball he's getting back. Well, I kind of do actually, because I know what level he's playing. I saw the match. I know what, what kind of returns were coming back. So I can, I can get pretty close. And like I said, I can mix different types of returns in there. This particular uh, couple of days, I fed in balls that were a little bit more, more medium speed, and they landed just beyond the service line, maybe two feet beyond the service line. So they weren't deep returns. Next week, I will work on more deeper returns. So I'll return the ball, and it lands you know, past the, between the 60-foot line and the 78-foot line, like in that deep area of the court, and see how he handles the pattern from that return. And so, like I said, when you organize your mind as a coach and you organize your plan sort of in this blueprint, it, it not only it keeps you as a coach less emotional in the situation, you're really able to pick out sort of some of the details of what's actually maybe occurring and most likely occurring, rather. So that's how we kind of uh, have started our, our, our practice session so far this week. And what did you discover about his first strike, the patterns of play, and the extended rally, and their error locations? And how did you decide which phases of the point to prioritize on the practice court then? The data is going to tell me which phases of the point to actually begin with. Or to yeah. focus on, right? So, like I said, you know, when we're when I'm looking at his S1 errors, did they happen more likely on the ad court when he served from the ad court or from the deuce court? And so, as you can see in the example I just pointed out, that he was struggling a bit even in practice playing his S1 when after he served to ad court. One of the interesting things <clears throat> that I did was I basically found the score, the momentum score and game score when he missed the S1 on the ad court in his match. And so what's interesting is that he was uh, on one of the points, he was down minus one love 15, which means he lost the first point. And then he missed an S1. Now he's down minus two love 30. So it's interesting that if you go down love 30, you might not want to go down missing an S1. You might want to go down battling a little bit more. So that's the idea, right? He was minus one up 40-30 in the game. So it was game point for him. He lost the, he was 30 all. He lost that point. So he's minus one 40-30. He had a 60% chance of starting out his WPP of winning the point. He misses an S1. That was one of the points, right? That was a game point. The other, one of the other points is he was minus one 30-40. So he was, it was a break point against his serve. But yeah. again, he had a 60% chance because he lost the point at 30 all, Okay, but he, miss, but he misses an S1, 
right? And notice the 40, 30, and 30, 40, those are both from AdCorp, right? So, and actually what's really funny about all these is they were all from AdCorp, all six. Yeah, but that's that's something you've definitely um, taught me. And that is, I think it's a, it's a problem for coaches and players when they don't distinguish between the two because they're not seeing what the problem might be. And that, look, Adam, Adam Juice are different beasts. They're different things. And they, you are going to have, look, if, if you learn to distinguish between the two and make sure that you examine them separately, you're going, you're going to find out a lot more about what what um, what challenges your player player is right. is facing what you can do on the practice court right and i think that's the key what you just said you're going to find out and discover more specifically about what's going on hmm. there's going to be less guessing and and the conversation between your your player and yourself as the coach is is more detailed and and it, it actually brings clarity to the player about what they need to accomplish to improve their performance. And so you're right. You know, most of the points or most of the games in playing the point from ad court, right? Because the the game score dictates that 30, 40, 40, love, 30, 40, add in, add out. Right. And then there's only a couple of scores on deuce on the where you where you can finish the game or end the game on deuce court, right? 40, 15, 15, 40. That's it. And so, you know, but but the visual, we talk about this in the book, the visual stimulation, and then just how you move as a player, right? Some players move better to their left versus their right. Some move better forward than backwards. And so you uh, you know instead of just putting it all in a in a, in a pot, a smorgasbord pot and practicing all of it all the time start to frame it out and practice certain sequences together. And you'll find that you'll find more uh, specific areas where they're actually breaking down for, in this case, Pierce was mm-hmm. breaking down on his S one more from the ad court than they do. Yes. So why is it so critical though, to record the momentum score as it moves from point to point along with the game score? Well, because when you record the momentum score for each point that is played, you know what the winning probability percentage when you begin the next point in the game. So this helps you consider what your pattern combination could match up with your WPP and your opponent's least favorite pattern, or even when when you have the highest, when you have a high percentage pattern you play. For example, when I look back at the patterns that Pierce rehearsed, Let's say from ad court, right? So when he went P5 and he got a forehand back, so he went T serve on ad position five and he got a forehand back on the S1. He was better off hitting that forehand to A than to hit it to C. Okay. Yeah. So, so if he, let's say he's up 40 30 in the game and it's minus one because he lost the, he lost the point at 30 off. So he has a 60% win percentage. Well, what he's going to take into account is, wait a minute, if I get a forehand, I'm going to take it into A. I'm not going to go back into C because I feel like that's that's the pattern that I did well in, in rehearsal and practice, and I feel like I'm hitting it well. So he's going to access that pattern at that critical time 
and he's going to understand what his momentum score is. So he knows what his probability is starting out. And then he's going to execute that pattern. That doesn't mean it's always going to work. But what I'm saying is that at least they're, they, they're create the players creating stability in their mind. They're not, they're not going yeah. into that 40, 30 point guessing or reacting emotionally. Like I really need to get this point and they just kind of go after it, hit whatever to where, to wherever. You know, if he hits a if he hits a, that same serve at that same score and he gets a backhand, he's if it's short, he's still going to go to A because his backhand down the line is he loves that shot and it's it's a very high percentage shot for him. But if it's deep on the backhand return or backhand S uh, return coming back to him, he's going to hit his S one backhand back to C cross court. So he underst- he he already has this competitive intelligence where if depends on where the return lands back into his court. And he can access these patterns because he's rehearsed these patterns, you know, religiously since he was, you know, 11, 12 years old. So he understands his patterns. And even when I watched this match, I really was impressed by the way he managed his patterns because he did not make a lot of weird decisions. They were very calculated decisions. And he was just having a bit trouble on that S1. And remember, like if we, if, if I should, if you saw all the numbers of the match, you'd be like, wow, this match was really close. You know, it was an error here, an error here, a, a win, you know, he won the point here. He won the, so he's putting a lot of pressure. He won a lot of points in this match. And, but, but this is the, this is the nuance, right? If matches are close in the game score, in the, in the momentum score, especially the momentum score is always close because it's always toggling back and forth. And then there's small little margins of momentum point here, momentum point there. You will find that the re- the, the match is close. You need this type of diving into the data because you need to find exactly where something's going off with your player because we're not dealing, you know, we have to get into the specifics if we're going to make these adjustments. And they, you can't just guess anymore. I mean, you can, but we have we have the capability to to access the data by just doing rally length and check and and recording the momentum score. I mean, look here are the here are the here are the things I recorded. Are you ready for this? I recorded yep. four p. I recorded five pieces of data in this match. I recorded whether it was a first or second serve. Whether he ser- whether Pierce is serving or returning doesn't matter. I recorded what side he was playing the point on, deuce or add. I recorded the rally length, okay, the point rally length. I recorded the momentum score, and then that just gave me the game score. I didn't even have to record that. So really, I recorded first or second serve, deuce or add, point rally length, the momentum score. I only recorded four pieces of data as I'm sitting there because later I can fill in the game score. I don't have to do that right away, right? So out of these four pieces of data, I've developed this just very specific practice schedule where we, the, he and I can go in and have conversation around what he feels like he's having difficulty with. And then I can, I can either, even record the practice if I want to and go back and look at maybe some specifics of how he moved into the shot or maybe his backswing was too big. One of the things we figured out about his return game from this data is that he was the returns he was missing, he was missing because he was just taking a little bit too big of a backswing. 
against, you know, 100, 105 mile an hour serves. He was, and maybe he was standing too close as well. So maybe back up a step, a step or two on the first serve. So that was the other thing we found out about the return game. So how does this affect the first strike patterns you rehearse in practice, as well as helping a player choose a more reliable pattern based on the combination of momentum and game score? So what it does is it creates this continuity and stability between the two shot sequences and the combinations, right? So forehand, forehand combination, back in forehand combination on returns, S serve, S1 forehand, S1 backhand. So the player is rehearsing the movement patterns and the footwork necessary to be in the right place at the right time. And I'm keeping a close eye on the timing of his decision step as well as any technical like swing path efficiencies or inefficiencies, right? So one of the things that you'll find when you start rehearsing patterns with your player is are they timing their decision step or their quote unquote split step? After yes. they serve, right? So, so once they serve, they should be hitting back the ground on their decision step. They should be touching the ground with their feet as their opponent is striking their shot. And a lot of players, you'll hit the serve, your opponent will hit the return, and you're still in the air when they're hitting the return. So you're coming down as the ball's crossing the net. You're going to be rushing to your S1. That was one of the things I discovered about some of Pierce's. S1 misses and errors as he was mistiming his decision step. When you're matching your shot selection and your targets regard, regarding first strike patterns, it sets the tone for the point. So for example, if, if Pierce hits a serve out wide to add P7 and I hit the return kind of heavy and back cross court. So he has to hit a backhand. Is he timing that? And is he hitting sort of a, a, a heavy spin ball, or is he trying to step forward and take it early and drive it? So like his decision-making and his timing. And so we can talk about that. Uh, first, I, I watch what he does first. And then we talk about whether that was a really yeah. smart decision to play that particular shot on the, on the return that I hit you. And so these are the types of specifics. Remember, I'm not doing away with technical adjustments. I'm not doing away with movement adjustments. I'm just finding these in the context of rehearsing patterns for two shot patterns. And obviously, if you, if you haven't read the book, definitely want to go out and read the book. There's a reason why it's two shot sequencing and not three shot sequencing and four shot sequencing is because I'm matching the two shot sequencing with the data. The first. Or you're not examining single shots. Yes, I'm not examining. That's right. I am examining single shots, but I'm doing it in the context of context two shots. Yes, I am examining single shots. You can't get away from that, obviously, because a point is won or lost based on a single shot. Two, indiv- two individual things two, two individual, Yes. In, within put, a single point. Correct, but they're put together as pairs because mm-hmm. you, there is a relationship and a legacy between shots. I hit this shot. You respond this way. I hit this shot. There's a legacy there. And we need to examine technique in the context yeah. of legacy of the relationship between two shots. And like I said in a couple of podcasts back, the present moment lasts two to 2.5 seconds, which means it takes one second for the ball to approximately one second for my shot to get to your racket. 
and then another second for to come back to my racket. And so that exchange of me hitting a shot, you hitting a shot, me hitting a shot, that is the present moment. And so we're training the present moment in practice. When we train two shots at a time, we are training our minds and our emotions and our state of being to remain in the present moment, to be engaged in that present moment. If we play individual shots one at a time, ISM, if we play ISM, individual shot making, we're only, pl- we're only recognizing and paying attention and concentrating to the first half of the present moment. And that can be problematic as we've explained in the past. Why is it so important for a player to be able to distinguish between the pattern they like the most versus the pattern that their opponent likes the least? Well, we'll go back to the example before of Pierce in practice. The pattern he played on ad side was he hit a T-serve, P5. He loves to hit that serve. He's really good at it. Yes. And then he, he would run around his backhand and hit his forehand to C. Well, he actually likes that pattern. He actually really enjoys playing that pattern, but that's not his most effective win percentage pattern right now at this moment in his training, in his play, competitive play. There's a better pattern. He's better off to hit the forehand to A, right? He's just, his win percentage is higher there. And so that's how you kind of determine it maybe in practice. Well, you know, when we have, when we're standing in front of of an opponent, okay, and so, we're about to play a point, we tend to play patterns that we feel comfortable playing, which is not necessarily the pattern that is the highest win percentage. So we tend to go to those patterns when we need to win a point. Okay. And so maybe we sort of rest into that pattern. And the problem is that that your your favorite pattern may be may be actually your opponent's favorite pattern. Mm. Right. So if you if you play, let's say you play a T served add P5 and the return comes back through the middle and you play a forehand back into the, your opponent's backhand. Well, they may want that. They may want to receive a backhand because they like to hit their backhand cross court. Whereas if you just take that forehand to into A and make them run to their forehand after yeah. they hit a return from add, that may be something that they don't really enjoy doing. That may be your opponent's least favorite pattern. But unless you actually do both patterns in a match, and you're not going to, and not, and you don't notice what your opponent is doing there or, or which pattern they kind of look like they don't like or they don't do as well. Well, you're not going to be able to access that pattern when you maybe have 40 30, the game scores 40 30, or you have add in where you're serving. And so the data analytics can be extremely helpful for you to determine which first strike serve pattern is winning more points versus a particular opponent. So when I look at this particular match, I can, you know, if I recorded the location of the S1, which I did not this match, but a lot of times I will, then I can, I can have a little bit more pieces of data or pieces of data to, to kind of put the puzzle together a little bit more detail. But in this case, I'm not too particularly concerned in where he hit his S1 in this match. Obviously it was the fifth match, you know, I did it in some other matches that he won, but I was more concerned, put him in a practice situation where he has to perform certain patterns from ad court, serve an S1, and let's see which ones he's breaking down on, right? And that's a way you can really discover it and the player can discover it for Mm -hmm. themselves. So 
it's 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 uh, this is a process and it, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, getting a getting a player to recognize which patterns their opponent is not enjoying versus the ones that they're doing well on, that is something you have to work through and it, it requires converse it requires an intelligent conversation that's based on actual facts and not this guesswork, right? Um, because we know all junior players can be very vague in their description of matches. Okay. Absolutely. And even, and even we as, as parents or coaches watching the match, yeah. we can watch the match with a confirmation bias. We're looking for certain areas to show up because they were in, they showed up in the last match. Right. And what's interesting about Pierce in this tournament, he played five matches over three days. He actually did things a little bit better every single match. And one of the things that we are going to address is his back end down the line. Once he got into the point, not at the beginning of the point, but once he got into the point, he was behind the baseline and he was taking it a little bit too low over the net. So just give a little bit more net clearance. But we'll address that in sort of a another patterns of play scenario, if you will, where he'll play a first strike pattern and then I'll feed a deep backhand and see if he can execute that backhand down the line from D to A. So that that's something we'll address later. But notice, I only am figuring that out because I wrote down, you know, that error, particularly when he was when he had a good chance to take the backhand down the line and he missed it and it missed the top at the top of the tape. So it was a a a, a very small, you know, margin for error that if you will. He wasn't missing them badly. You know, he wasn't spraying them wide or you know, trying to rip them, they wasn't missing them long. It was just barely at the top of the tape, and then they would just fall to his side of the court. So yeah, there's, so we'll there's a tendency that on that that particular shot to want to go directly to the target area, low, Correct. lower over the net, rather than uh, shape the shot more. I think um, that's yeah. just a, or at least slow it down a little bit. Maybe just yeah. take a little bit of speed off of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's seen as a hyper-aggressive shot a lot of the time. And, um, yeah, hence it's driven. Um, and the error can occur, I think. But I wanted to ask you, Sterling, does this pattern choice need to also take into account the momentum probability of winning the next point? In other words, do these choices need to match up together to give your player the best chance of winning that next point? I mean, that is the ideal situation. First, you want to know what your WPP is for starting the next point. And then you can choose a first right pattern that can best match your strengths versus your opponent's weaknesses. Or you may actually want to surprise your opponent and actually hit up, go up, play a pattern that's into their strengths, if you will, because it's something they're not necessarily, you've noticed that they, you've, you've gone into their weakness a few times on the pattern using a pattern and and sort of ex- trying to exploit their backhand if that's their weakness. Maybe on this point, you maybe want to hit a serve into their forehand, maybe jam them on their forehand side instead of jamming them on their backhand side because they're expecting it, if you will. So uh, I'll give you an example. If you're serving on ad court and the score is 30-15, you're up 30-15, but you're at plus one. You're starting with a 40% WPP, which means – it's going to be much more difficult to win two points in a row here and go up 40-15 than it is losing a point and, and the score going back to 30-all in the game. So 
it, let's say you're playing a right-handed player. Well, you may want to consider playing your serve into P7, jamming up a backhand, or attempting to jam this return player on their backhand. Now, when you do that, if you hit a really good, maybe a slider serve, a twisting serve, maybe, I'm not sure if I would hit necessarily a kick serve into seven, because that's actually going to jump up into a player's backhand, unless you can get it up high enough. But I would hit more of a sort of a twisting serve into seven, make it twist back into the right-handed backhand, into their left hip. And then you're going to be want to look, as a serve player, look for to hit a forehand next. Now, in Pierce's case, he would look to hit his forehand into A, right? And make the player run to their forehand because that's his better S1 shot. He hits the, he hits the other one well, but he may want to choose the A there. Now, this pattern you play, it's, you're hitting it because you've recognized that your opponent's backhand return from ad court is not quite as strong as their forehand return. And you're up plus one, 30, 15. So you're looking to go up big in the game, obviously. But the main focus is when your momentum point, right? And not give away this direction point back to your opponent. So if you play this pattern well, the, the P7 uh, into their, into their, encase their backhand and you get a forehand, you're going to bump that WPP yeah. up to 50% almost immediately in the point. So momentum really moves from shot to shot. That's where it begins to, to be active. Okay. Momentum moves from shot to shot. That's why you got to remain in the present moment. And so that's why you want to choose this P7. And when you go to practice, if you've been rehearsing this, this pattern in practice, you're going to be able to execute it in this moment in the match where you're up plus 13015. Because you're going to be comfortable, you know, going for that P7 serve. You're going to be comfortable hitting that forehand, whether you go back behind them in the C, or maybe you take it into A and make them run. So if you don't rehearse this pattern and maybe keep score like we did with Pierce, you keep score so you can actually have an account of the of whether it was accurate and consistent. You're not guessing even in practice. Then if you don't practice this, it's going to be a little bit nerving, unnerving for you to do this at this point in the game. You may hit that serve a little bit too big. Yes. You may actually hit it too safe. And that's just because of a lack of rehearsal in practice. You're just not confident. And I think confidence is something and being courageous is something we need to talk more about on the practice court. And if we, if we develop being more courageous on the practice court with these specific patterns, we're going to, that courage is going to transfer into a match and we're going to be courageous when we're up 30, 15 plus one. And we're going to be going for that momentum point, not necessarily chasing the game and trying to win the game yes. too aggressively. We're aggressive, yeah. but we're not over overly. And there's an important difference between the two. So, so yeah, that's 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 a fascinating account of um, your experiences in the first strike uh, pattern selection. There, that's that's really interesting. I wanted though to look in this final section. How would a coach and player begin to re-engineer their practice core to look and feel more like the experience of the most recent competitive match and does this include a coach developing a practice blueprint and will it depend more heavily on the most recent match data analytics? Well, I mean, obviously the answer to that is absolutely yes, <laughs> because the first step is to look at the data from a recent match. And if you don't have data, then it's going to be really hard to develop 
a blueprint that's not based on guesswork or just remembering what you remember, or maybe some statistics that don't sort of link up together that maybe you, you, you did or some, or a parent gave to you, right? I mean, just knowing the, the, the amount of backhand errors or the number of forehand errors that occurred in the match does not identify when the error occurred. You know, which forehand did, were they missing more often? Yeah. In Pierce's case, he was missing the S1 forehand and backhand on the ad court, not on the deuce court, right? Or maybe it was the first shot in patterns of play, you know, the second shot after the serve or the, or the second shot after the return. Maybe they're going for that shot a little bit too much. As we talked about in a couple of podcasts back, we, yes. we that's known in traditional tennis culture as the third shot of the point where you be, start to become aggressive you know, with your patterns, right? You get the serve in, you hit the next ball in and okay, now it's time to get aggressive on this third shot. Well, a lot of players miss that shot. A lot of junior players miss that shot. It's the S2, it's the R2. It's because they're, they're, they're kind of playing this individual shot making, right? They get their serve in, they get the next shot in. So it's kind of in sequence a little bit. And then they almost come out of sequence and they go ISM on that third shot, the S2, R2. Right. And so, you know, developing this blueprint as a coach. I like the way it's often treated, though, Sterling. Just sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. The, I think it's quite interesting, though, the way that people approach that shot. And again, in traditional tennis culture, we can see that with the commentators on the um, top matches. They'll treat that third. What they would tend to do is it's good to win the point on the third shot. In fact, it's so good to win the point on the third, third shot that it's much better than winning it on you know, an, an extended rally, perhaps. Well, and that's true. I mean, that, you know, that's exactly what we hear and what's put mm. out there as, as sort of um, conventional wisdom, if you will. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, because a extended rallies, you know, they are pretty much a 50-50 division there of winning and losing points. I mean, why not? Why would you want to try to end the point there after the serve and return? But the problem with that is, you know, and we call it ratcheting up the shot, right? Ratcheting up the intensity, turning up the intensity is problematic. If you're not doing it with a competitively intelligent mindset of playing the next two shots in sequence, right? So it's fine to be aggressive, be aggressive on the third shot, be aggressive on the S2 R2, but keep in mind you you're doing that to play an S3 or R3, right? So you could treat it more as a setup shot instead of this trying to end the point shot or trying to hit a winner. And if, if you do it in a two-shot sequencing my headspace, you're going to be more accurate and consistent on that S2, R2. The other thing interesting is... interesting that the, the, the third... The, I mean, this idea of the third shot doesn't exist for me as, a, as an art of winning player. No. Or a first strike player because it's, if anything, it's the first shot of the second that, sequence of the extent yes. of of, um, of the patterns of play area of the rally. Right. So it's in fact it's a, it's the first shot. Well, it's it's if you treat it like that, your brain really resets to the next phase of the point because you're doing this in context of the of when do points average as far as where they end most of the time, right? You know. We can't get past the consistency begins on the first two, but it extends into patterns of play, right? 
about 80% of the points you play in a match will end on the first, within the first four shots you play or your opponent plays. So eight shots total or less, that's about 80% of the points. Even if it's 70% of the points, that's a lot of points. Yes. Right? The match is going to be determined inside of those phases of the point. Extended rallies are great, but that's not where that's not where the majority of the points that actually cause victories and losses, as far as matches are concerned, ha- occur. So we really do need to treat these two-shot sequences with the reset in between much more seriously, in my opinion. And it's great to try to find rhythm in a point, and it's great to re- – I rehearse rhythm. We just do it at the beginning of the practice. We rehearse extended rallies a lot, but it's it's in the first 15 minutes of the practice. And we find our rhythm, we get yeah. comfortable, and the player gets comfortable hitting. Now we go into first strike and patterns of play, and we link those two shot sequences together with a reset. And we have and we understand that patterns are finite. They're not infinite patterns on a tennis court. We're playing inside of a rectangle. There's only a certain number of places you can hit the ball. And there's only a certain number of sequences that can be actually occur, right? Because you're, we're defining the, the service court as on the deuce court, one, two, three, four, and on the ad court, yep. five, six, seven, eight, and we have A, B, C, D. So we have, the, we have the combinations that they're already there. So yes, I think that the data and the more, obviously the more data you can have, the more detailed, but then you can don't get in trouble of over, over analyzing this stuff, like break it down. Put it in sections, and we take we take this you know, one day at a time. Like I said the other day, we only really focused on the S one forehand. We didn't focus on the S one backhand. We will next week. We'll hit serves and focus on the S one backhand, and then we'll do some you know mix and match. But you can't attack all of this at one time. Every match, I'm looking for something a little bit different to work on, as far as statistically, if you will. You know, when I when I was looking at Pierce's return game in this match. On the deuce court, he made, um, let's see, he made eight return errors on deuce court. Four of those return errors were on the first point of the game. That's the big. First, now that's, yeah. that's interesting. Okay. You, you, so, you know, you, you've, you, if you can hold it down that much, much that's... Yeah. Well, it's there if you keep the momentum score, you keep the, you keep the, um, the side of the court they're on, right? On the ad court, uh, he missed four returns. Two of those were on after the second deuce had occurred, right? So these are little Completely things. Completely the opposite end of the game. Correct, correct. And so, but, no, the, yeah, but there you've got that brilliant contrast, Sterling, because look, if we're looking at missed returns, yes, right, you'd lump those two together. <laughs> but well, then, well, of course, but they right? Have- so, so one of the things is when you miss the return on the first point of the game, yeah. It could very much be a just distraction error. You're distracted. You're not checking in a hundred percent after either a game has you've either stayed on the same side, a game just was was won or lost. Like you just won or lost your serve, and now the serve is switching. And that reset between you serving and then stepping up and hitting your first return on the first point played off your opponent's serve. Yeah, that's, that's a constant that's that can be a concentration. Right. That's fascinating, and that, that's something I think we're going to need to have to look at again this year because sure. you know that, that that and this is what we're finding with the art of winning. I don't, you know that that's that's new to me. That's a new 
insight. Yes. That's what we give all the time. That's what, so look, you know, we're giving these insights all the time. But it's because we were able to make that distinction between, look at the difference between the ad return errors and the juice return errors. Yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. so important. And then you're able to deduce that. Um, well, let me give you, you an know, example. To make, how... make that level of analysis that's yeah. so helpful to them in a match. Yeah. Let me give you an example of how you can rehearse that where you don't miss the return of the first point of the game is you play a point with the player serving, whether you win or and we just say that's the game. And now the serve switches and you go, okay, reset. Here comes the first serve of the next game, make your return. And so that's the kind of, you can, you can simulate that scenario in practice because it's a mental reset. It's walk back to your towel or change sides and then get in and then focus in on the return of the first point of the next game, right? You can rehearse these things in practice if you give thought to them, but you can't give a good, you can't give thought to something that you don't really know what's happening. You don't know the details of what actually occurred in the match. If I know Pierce missed- That game, I'm looking forward to you. um, In fact, you just done it there. Could we call oh, it distraction yeah. just because it sounds like um, a Jane Austen novel? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm going to create a game that way. I'm going to create a, a competitive intelligence game that focuses on some concentration uh, issues uh, just like that. But that's, that's important to me because that's four points. And those points are critical because you, you lose the first point of the game. And that gives confidence to your opponent when they're serving. So anyway, let's move on. So what obstacles then keep coaches and players from recognizing and then implementing these changes on the practice call? So I think the main obstacle is just the lack of recent or relevant data, right? So maybe we're feeding off data that was, you know, three months ago, or maybe we're feeding off some information that we guessed at they were having problems with their forehand. I mean, I have a player that constantly, she's like, is my forehand doing better? Is it getting better? You know, it's the you know, last few matches have not. I'm like, look, we got to look at the most relevant data here and what the most relevant uh, issue is with your forehand. And so the thing about it is um, if we don't have data to analyze or recent data, then there's a lot of guessing that happens between the player and the coach. And so repetition of the technical skills without this context of error location from a recent match, it only creates the practice and court environment that yeah. really doesn't feel like the match situation or the scenario. So we can get stuck in our routines as coaches and even as players of what we think should happen on the practice court instead of recognizing the shot scenarios that, ha- that mo- happened most in the most recent match, right? That's why I took the last match here. Notice I took the last match he played right? Whether he won or lost. I wanted to see which, this was the match he was the most fatigued in. he had already played two days, two matches each day, very, very intense matches. Mm. And so I took his last match, right? The main obstacle, one of the other main obstacles is um, we just, as we don't allow time in our practice to focus on these first strike patterns, and then even bleeding into the next two shot pattern, patterns of play. So a lot of, we'll do, you know, two shot, two, we call it two plus two. So we'll do the first strike pattern and then we'll have another pattern behind that. 
to reverse. Yeah. And then we stop the point. And then we do it. We do it 10 times. And we see, and then you can start to notice what's breaking down. You know, is the is it the first shot of the second two shot sequence that's that keeps you keep you're making more airs on, or is it the last shot, the second shot of the patterns of play? I had a player that they did beautifully on the first three shots. They were like, return, R1, R2, and then they would just miss. Yeah. They were doing it consistently, you know, three, four times in a row. Uh, as we did these, went through. I'm like, what's up with the what's up with the last shot? You know, are you just like bailing on me, or are you just you just going for a winner because it's the last shot? Like, what are you doing here? Like, hey, the point's going to continue. You keep missing that, you keep giving me points because we're scoring, right? And so, if you don't score this, that's the other thing mm-hmm. is the player can just get that last shot and go. Oh, I'm just going to go for break. I'm just going to hit it as hard as I can because it doesn't really count because we're not keeping score. Well, we keep score here at the Art of Winning. And so that last shot, that fourth yeah. shot you're playing, right? The R3 and the S3, it counts for something. You know, it counts for the point. And higher level players, they've got to make all four shots to win the point. They miss one of those shots. It's my point. Other players were developing. If you make your first two, you get a point. If you miss one of the next two shots, I get a point. So that's one all. So you can modify this for different ages, for different skill levels. Right. You can even play it where each shot counts for a point. Okay. If you're working with a player that's really having problems with consistency, you can say, okay, you made the first shot, you missed the second shot, uh, or or you give them a pass. They can miss at least one, right? That you can miss one shot. You keep going in the pattern, right? So they, they make the return, they miss the R1. Oh, you feed the next ball, they make the R2, they make the R3. The score's three one in their favor. But you can modify the scoring to the to the level of the player or what you're really trying to achieve with the player. You can do it with a high level player and have them hit targets. So how many targets can they hit? How many targets did they miss in the two plus two pattern? First strike patterns of play. You can be very creative in this. But if you don't have data, if you if you're not starting, if you're not rehearsing first strike and patterns of play patterns because of the data. Because of what you know, the data is showing you, that's where a lot of the errors, most of the errors are occurring. You're not going to develop this beautiful blueprint that can be create this very inspirational and very enthusiastic practice environment for you and yeah. your life. Yeah. That's, um, I might have just described the last question, redesigning the practice part. That might have been the answer to the last one. So, yeah. But is that, you would then say that that's, Creating a competitively intelligent atmosphere. I like that phrase. Yes. That's a competitively intelligent atmosphere for our players. That's yes. what we want, isn't it? Yes. We're redesigning the practice court to include those four most important shots you'll play in each point, right? The first strike sequence and the patterns of play sequence, right? That's two plus two. Those are the four most important shots you're going to play. You're going to play those four shots more often than any other shot after that. No. Just because yeah. of a point rally link. So when you strong frame the problem of resolving these most frequently played shots in the match, okay, if we don't frame it like this, we're going to fail to advance performance when it comes to the technical proficiency yes. and the error reduction of our player, right? We can absolutely address the technical flaws of stroke production in the context of these two shot sequences. In fact, actually, it's much more, it's a much more productive analyst, excuse me, it's much more productive to analyze technical efficiency 
within the context of first strike and patterns of play phase of the point. Because you see the points in their natural habitat of how they happen. That's This is how they occur in a match. It's not drop, feed, and play the point out. Let me repeat that. Yeah. Matches are not made up of drop-fed balls and you play the point out. So why are we doing it so much in practice? It doesn't happen. It's not the natural occurrence of the match, right? The more you can simulate how the match looks in practice, the better off you're going to be. The better so, off you're going to be as a coach and a player. How has this process made you, Sterling, a better coach? Well, I mean, obviously, by the sound of my voice, you can tell I'm much more excited about coaching. I mean, I I yeah. go out every day and I'm I'm so much more energized because and I'm and I'm actually. I'm energized emotionally. I'm energized cognitively, right? Because I have a plan in front of me. I can follow it. We can modify it. We can, you know, sort of revise it. Honestly, it can revolutionize our focus levels as coaches and players. You know, I'm not, I'm no longer this slave to my own opinion of what I believe should be done in practice for this player, right? I kind of think most coaches, though, Sterling. They get tired and drained because they know that they're guessing. Yes. And the more we understand, we we have to operate almost a level of uh, self-deception. And that's tiring. That's, and you you know, also coaches get defensive, I think as well. And that, that is the complete opposite of what we're trying to do because, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, but I know that when I go out and work, I'm I'm as close as I know. I know that I'm as close as I can be to the reality of my player improving and what they need to improve. Right? Yeah, I'm close to what they need, much closer to what they need right. to do. Now that's where I get my energy from. And here's what I've noticed though, after doing this, after looking at match data, coming to the practice court, here's what I've discovered. Data is not just reserved to be recorded and mapped in only matches. Yeah. If we map data in our practices from week to week, you know, month to month, players can actually begin. We can show players their practice improvement Yeah. because we have percentages and data measurements instead of just relying on the feelings of how we're improving in our practice, right? We can, we can put forth the, the practice data. You know, just like I laid out today of how many times Pierce was successful on his S1 pattern when it was this type pattern he was trying to execute. How many times did he make both shots? How many times did he miss one of the two, right? And so I I just have found that this creates just a more stable uh, headspace. Yes. As a coach and a player. And I'm not, I'm less, a lot less offended by others' opinions of whether I'm doing it, you know, the way they want me to do it or the way they see it should be done, right? I'm I'm strong framing the problems more accurately. And so I feel like I'm getting more meaningful solutions moving forward. So I'm also, because of the data and the analysis of the data, I'm able to ask better questions to my players. Instead of asking questions of just getting these single word answers, I, I'm engaged, we're engaging in better conversation and they're growing as individual 
human beings. They're growing in character. They're growing in their, in their um, ability to be courageous and their ability to manage difficult situations. I mean, it is, this is a difficult game, which is all the more reason why we need to sort of break up this idea of just, oh, I really don't know what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. No, we, we know, we know what's going to happen. If we're looking, there's patterns everywhere in life and certainly playing a tennis match and practice. So I look forward to hearing from other coaches as they discover this. And I've heard from, you know, thousands of coaches that have started to transform their practice in this way. And they're really enjoying the process a lot more. Is it a little bit is there a learning curve here? Of course, because you're breaking out of this old, you're breaking out of this other mindset you had about how it should happen, right? You're, you're, you're going against the grain here. This is going against the grain. This is, we're not preaching something that is easy. This is a, this is something that you have to be disciplined enough to, to go through, but use a creative mindset to it. And when you start to be creative, make sure it's realistic. Make sure you don't go too creative where you're doing things on the practice court that they don't even happen, right? Like trying to hit 10 shots in a row. It's a great concept, but honestly, it's not realistic, especially if it starts with a drop fed ball. Okay. Now I say that and some people are going to be like, well, what's wrong with trying to hit 10 balls in a row? We, you didn't hear what I just said. Hitting 10 balls in a row is fine, but you better start with a serve and return. Yeah. Because if you don't, you're not rehearsing in the manner in which you're expected to perform. So that's all I'm saying. Do it at the beginning of practice, find your rhythm. But then once you start this training of nailing down issues, you've got to have the serve and return as a part of this process. Because if you don't, yeah, I think the, um, yeah, it's, I've, it's, well, I've, I've certainly got in mind for the next for the next podcast this discussion on practice. So what makes good coaching and what makes good practice in that way? Because that's going to be interesting. Because that's what the, that um, difference you've just described, Sterling, between being energized and in a dialogue with people is a completely different experience that most people are not experienced at the moment. Uh, at the yes. moment, when they're involved in tennis, can't wait for that one, Sterling. Is it all right now if we we bring this fascinating um, podcast to a close? Because I want to mention certain things that are going on that I'm very excited about. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do that. Let's. let's yeah, okay. So what we have, the, we are, we are, we're very close now to be able to offer out our new course, the opening tennis course, which has been, which has been some time in the making. It's based on the ideas in the book. Um, we're excited about this because it's completely different from anything that's gone before, and we're going, we're going to be doing a podcast uh, on on this when. The closer we get to its, its launch date, so we're going to keep an eye out for that. So keep firing questions about uh, about the course, and uh, you know we'll we'll get back to you. But uh, but that's imminent. We've got the the book in Audible and Kindle and hardback versions now. That's been <laughs> that's been selling well. People like it. People are getting involved, and it's spawning a, a lot of questions. I think yes, yes, Sterling, you just. So that you're you're answering questions. I'm answering a lot more certainly than I was before before Christmas, before the book really kicked in. Keep those questions coming, please. Keep and uh, yeah, and, and start reading the book. And if you haven't got it, you know where to go. 
and finally we've got we've got we've got the podcast get involved subscribe to the podcast so we can start um, we can start really building some momentum here and really get to grips with things are changing things are changing fast in the tennis world better to be ahead of the curve here that's what i would say for today sterling thanks so much that was great